first appeared to his disciples after rising from the grave. What were his first words to them? What was his first statement? Confess your sins. Right? Peter had denied him. They were hiding in fear. They had all split. Nope. He said, peace. So, peace to you. Shalom. By the way, this is not by the way, Pete, this is Peter John, but this is Peter John. And by the way, to that, as you probably know, the name, the word Peter in the Aramaic and in the Greek language of the New Testament means stone, right? Upon this small stone. I will build my church. Upon this small stone, no, upon this large stone, I will build my church. But thou art Peter, the small stone, right? So stone, as you know, Peter. And then you have John and James. Now, the word John, Johannan, means to replace. And James, the name James, means grace. So Peter, John, James. The stone is replaced by grace. Do a word study on that. Check it out. The stone is replaced by grace. What stone? The Ten Commandments, the law, is replaced by grace. For as John wrote, the law was given to us by Moses, but grace came to us through Jesus Christ. So, by the way, you look at Peter James and John, right? And their ministry was to the Jews. So they were preaching your stone, your 10 commandments has been replaced by grace where Paul was able to preach to the Gentiles who were never under the stone of the 10 commandments. But anyways, Jesus appears to them And the first thing he says is peace. Because you see, the stone had been replaced by grace. Pretty good news. No, very good news. Right? Now, in John chapter 13, Jesus is going to be the Passover lamb the next day. By that, I mean they were eating their Passover meal together. Jesus was giving it to them, and it now is known as the Lord's Supper or communion. 
And Jesus is teaching them. He's talking to them. He is saying to them there in John 13, I am going to the Father. By the way, so often we as Christians talk about heaven. One day I'm going to heaven. We want to go to heaven. But Jesus wants to go to the Father. Because Jesus understood, rightly so, heaven is heaven because the Father is there. And heaven is heaven for us because Jesus. Now, John 13, Jesus says this. At the end of John 12, the chapter ends in tragedy because Israel had rejected Jesus. They rejected the Messiah. And so Jesus departed and was hidden from them, as it were. And so it's interesting, even in his resurrected form or upon his resurrection, Jesus never revealed himself to Israel alone again. They rejected him. But as far as his disciples, these 12, even Judas for that moment before he betrayed Jesus, it says that Jesus loved them to the end in John chapter 12. I mean, Philip misunderstood Jesus. Peter would deny Jesus. They would all sleep on Jesus. But having known where he was going and where he had come, he loved them to the end. You know, by the way, the Lord knows all about you. He will love you to the end. I'm glad he won't just love you until your next sin. But even through your weakness and even through your unfaithfulness, he will love you. I mean, what if we loved our kids? How often people might view how God loves them. I love you as long as you don't mess up. Or if husbands and wives loved each other like this. But even more than that, Jesus loves us to the end. Now, going back to John 13 now, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all of these things into his hand, he stooped down to wash their feet. And as he stooped down to wash their feet, it wasn't because he forgot who he was. It was because he knew who he was, it says. He knew where he had come from and he knew where he was going. And, and by the way, that reminds me, the reason if I, when I don't serve others, when I, which happens more often than I would like. When my heart doesn't have that serve mentality, it's because I have forgotten where I've come from and where I'm going in Jesus Christ. Remember in the prodigal, the older brother was angry and jealous of his younger brother. And that's why he had 
such opposition instead of welcoming his younger brother in that prodigal story son of the prodigal son because he was jealous and you're usually jealous of someone who is like you right you're not going to be usually jealous of the opposite sex or a teenager isn't going to be jealous of an old guy. But when you forget where you've come from and where you are going in the Lord, you can become competitive instead of serving. And that's what happened to the disciples because as supper was ending, the other gospels, Luke tells us they were disputing who was the greatest. Even right after taking the Lord's Supper, they were disputing who was the greatest. And so there was this pail of water and a towel. No one else had gotten up, but it was there all prepared to wash feet each of them saying, in a sense, well, it's not my turn. Maybe they, someone said or thought, I, I did it last time. I'm not in the rotation. I doubt it's my turn, Thomas might have said. But Jesus, who is the greatest one of them all, humbled himself and washed their feet and said, the one who is greater sits. But doesn't just sit, the one who is greater serves. What a, what a, what a, what a great um, juxtaposition, if I might say that word. I mean, we're taught our, our flesh, our frame generally assumes the one who is greatest is served. And Jesus came and taught us, no, the one who is greatest serves. So he washes their feet. Now in John chapter 12, the chapter before, Mary anointed the feet of Jesus. And so then in John chapter 13, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. Jesus had perfume on his feet and he washes theirs with water because um, Jesus' feet didn't need washing, <laughs> did they? Yet his walk exudes a perfume that delights the Father's heart, that he's got this fragrance about him. He doesn't need his feet washed. Jesus is perfect. He's got this aroma, this fragrance that is beautiful. And so he washes their feet. And if you count the actions that he takes, there are seven of them. As he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, washed their feet, and dried or wiped their feet. Seven. That's the perfect ministry of our Lord Jesus. 
And so he laid aside his garment. He took that towel. He washed their feet. Contrast that with him now in Revelation chapter 1, right? You know, this is Jesus in Revelation as he appears right now. John 13 was as he appeared at that moment when he was serving Revelation 1. He's clothed with a garment down to his feet. Around the chest is a golden band. It is not no longer the garb of a servant. It is the glory of divine. But but I want you to note this, if you're listening. It says that he was girded with these things, right? In Revelation chapter 1. That same word, girded, in Revelation chapter 1 is the same word in John 13 that is used when it says Jesus girded himself with a towel to wash their feet. Beautiful. He washes feet and now in the same way he is clothed as the king. Now notice that the feet of these disciples are the only thing that were washed by Jesus. Peter, as you know, Peter said, what are you doing? Don't wash my feet. Jesus says, then I have nothing to do with you. Peter says, then wash my whole self from head to toe. Jesus says, I just need to wash your feet, Peter. But those are the only things that he washed their feet. Now, in the Old Testament, priests, you know this probably, as they were readying or preparing themselves for work in the tabernacle, washed their feet and they washed their hands at the laver, the golden laver there in the the outer courtyard in order to cleanse themselves ceremonially to do the work of their ministry. Their hands and their feet were washed. But now, in this case, Jesus just washes the feet of the disciples. Because I believe one thing that this is telling, that this is saying, is I'm going to wash your feet, he says to them in a very real sense, in my opinion. You don't have to wash your hands with works anymore. It's not your work, it's your walk. And even to Peter, he didn't say, if I don't wash your feet, you will have no part in me. He says, part with me. So you'll have no part with me, Peter. He's speaking of cooperation, walking with him, serving together. It's not about salvation because for those, these guys have already received salvation. That's my suggestion to you as I look at Jesus washing their feet. He's not saying you need to wash yourself in the blood again and again, as it were. It's once and for all, you are righteous. 
It's no longer our work. It's our walk with him. The hands speak of the work. The feet speak of the walk. And he washes their feet from the dust. Because see, when you're in his word and he's cleansing you like he did for them, you're not more dirty. You're less dirty when you've been in the water of the word. You're feeling cleansed, not bathed from head to toe. That happened when you were born again. You're just feeling cleansed when you're in the water of the word. In John 15, he, he takes away we are told literally lifts up the Greek word. Those branches that are hanging down in the dirt, in the dust, they cannot produce grapes because they're too dirty. And that word that is used when he says, and the, and the, the father, God will prune those branches is literally cleaned those branches farmers of a vineyard will find that insects attach and that there's dirt so they'll use water to wash away that which might dirty or defile the vine and Jesus is saying we are being washed from sin and guilt you're already clean he doesn't say do this or that, but the message of the water of God's word and the message of grace will once again cleanse us. You're already clean, but it gives you that cleansing, not to make you born again. You're already born again, but that cleansing in your heart, in your conscience. Beautiful. And so he washes their feet, doesn't he? Not to cause them to be born again, but just to refresh them in so many ways. I'm glad that he does the same for us. Sing with me.
reason I go Monday through Friday here on Rogue Grace and talk just about that grace is because grace isn't just a part of Christianity. Grace is the center of Christianity, which makes it different than any other religion. And I don't mean to, and I don't want to preach a sloppy agape at all. I want to put the premium. I want to put the value on the price that Jesus Christ paid that we might be recipients of this glorious grace. Because grace means we get good that we do not deserve because he got the bad he did not deserve. I mean, the law in most any economy, the world system, the law is better than those things, but it too includes everyone who does good gets good. Everyone who does bad gets bad. And we might say, well, how can you be righteous apart from anything you have done? And you look at Jesus and you say, in the same way that he became sinful without ever committing a sin. Look at the Ten Commandments for a moment. The very first commandment, have no other gods before me. Even as that was being written out, etched on stone, as it were, given to Moses, they were already breaking that first commandment, the people of Israel, around that golden calf. It seems like, here's my point, the harder we try to keep the law, the worse sin becomes. The law makes it worse. I, I'm not against the, I'm not bashing on the law, far from it. I am for the law. But I'm for the law and the same reason God made the law. It makes us guilty. I mean, it was an awesome statement that Paul made in Romans. Apart from law, sin was dead. That's not only a statement, by the way. It's a good word of advice. Sin is dead apart from the law. So keep it dead. Stay apart from the law, from grah, from legalism. Because when we reintroduce the law into our church, into our thinking, into our homes, we're bringing the ministry of death, as it's called. I mean, look at the devil. He can transform himself into an angel of light. Boy, oh boy, is that indicting. An angel of light. That angel of light is using the law and grah. He wants the law to come back because he is the accuser. See how that works? I know you do. The devil is an expert on the law. 
Because you see, he is a prosecutor. And if you use the law as the means in your own thinking to be right, to be blessed because of what you do, he has you nailed. For the law points to you. That's the problem with so many Christians. They're pointing to themselves. They're looking at themselves, talking about themselves. But grace points to Jesus. trust the sweetest frame but holy trust in Jesus name my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness I dare not trust Sweetest friend grace, you will live in holiness. 
by accident <laughs> more than you will trying to be holy under the law. Under grace, you will live by, in holiness by accident more than you will trying to be holy under the law. You may wonder, or you may be annoyed, or you might be thinking, Pete, why is it the message of grace day after day? Well, because the program is called Rogue Grace. <laughs> so I better talk about grace. But I really believe what I just said. That under grace, you will live in holiness by accident more than you will trying under the law. I am convinced. I've tried to be holy under the law. I've seen others try to be holy under the law. And it ends in a disaster. Just like it did for the people of Israel. When the law was given, they were already breaking it. That first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods. And there they are, as that is given, dancing around the golden calf. And I've been around just long enough now to recognize this propensity in human nature, whether yours, mine, a 10-year-old, or anyone The harder you try, the worse off you're going to be when it comes to the things of the Spirit and of God. Oh, you might outwardly even pull it off, or I might outwardly look like I am keeping the law. But the inner being, the personality gets so ugly, competitive pharisaical, judgmental. No one wants to be around that person. There was something about Jesus where people genuinely loved to be around him, even though his behavior and his action was perfect. And so it might be the it might be the proverbial Holy Joe or whatever. The person that has their act together. They're dressed just right. They talk just right. And no one wants to be around that person. Is that a Christian? Is that what we're called to be? I'm not saying we should go out and sin willfully. I'm not saying that at all. That can just do as much damage or more. What I'm saying is when you recognize, when you realize, when you receive God's grace in reality, I mean, not just lip service. I mean, when you truly by the Holy Spirit are able to comprehend God's grace, you will live in holiness by accident. Even more than when you were trying under the law. Because yes, the heart is desperately wicked. 
as the scriptures say in Jeremiah. The heart is deceitfully wicked. But then the same Old Testament says God has given us a new heart in Ezekiel 16. And we, I mean, rightly sing, create in me a clean heart. But the fact is to realize that he has created in me a clean heart. That's why you can follow your heart. It's the new covenant. God says, I will write my will, my purpose on your heart. So you can really follow your heart without legalism and without being a judge of other people. You can enjoy the grace of God. You know, I know I don't have this whole thing covered, but I am covered. I don't have this whole thing perfectly wired. No way. There are things in my theology that I'm still trying to tie up. There are things that I'm trying to understand and will for the rest of my life. But one thing I do know, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And though I might take some flack, maybe, let's just say, um, hypothetically, for preaching grace, the fact is, that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Not so that we might be better people, but that we might be cleansed of unrighteousness and made perfect in the sight of God. You know, I know you agree with me when I say that is good news. Dazzling hearts too fast to climb I got so hard to fall so far But I found heaven as love swept low My heart beating, my soul breathing I found my life when I laid it down My wood falling, spirit soaring
So I asked my daughter, Bailey, who's 15, which reminds me I have to take her to the DMV tomorrow for her permit test. But anyways, I asked her um, how church went last night in the youth group. And she talked to me about Jake Sartain's message how much she loved it, how much she enjoyed it. And then I asked Sadie how hers went and how much she loved it and enjoyed it. My two older daughters, I don't know about tomorrow. I have no idea what it holds. But I will say that as of today, they love God and are walking with him. And my point is this, pure grace. They go to church on Sunday. They go to church on Monday for Ben and his study. They go to church on Wednesday. They love the church activities. They go to camp, blah, 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 right in that sense. And it has virtually zip to do with their pop cheering them on in terms of get more religious girls their walk with God at school it's not zealotry but it is beauty they're not little preacher kids They are preachers, kids, and they're not embarrassing me. In fact, they make me oh so proud. And all credit goes to me, not. If anything, it would go more to my wife, but ultimately she would say the same. Truly, God is gracious. What I will say is, at family devotions or communion or dinner time or conversation, which I'm not saying we do this every night, not at all, but when we have these things, they know that I believe God has grace for me and for our family. And if not, it's over for us. But he does. And I'll tell you something. That has made them walk in virtue. Walk in the light. Not me telling them what they must do or setting out parameters for them to live in. I do very little of that. And yet I can't speak of tomorrow. I can speak of as of today. For my 15-year-old and my 14-year-old. And then, of course, for my two eight-year-olds, I can say they walk with God. And the reason I'm saying this is because His grace is doing all of the work. Not Peter John. Not even close. And they would agree with that. (laughs) But they know one thing is this. 
if they want to talk to me about God, ultimately, it's always going to come back around to grace. It will. It just will. It always has and always will. And I have to say, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. You may know this, but speaking of teenagers and the various things that take place in high school, I think of the story, well, of Samson. You might know this, but his very first words, his very first conversation, he says, go get that woman. She is right in my eyes. (laughs) He says that, doesn't he? The word about his eye would be his first and his last as the Philistines ramrodded his eyes right out. Poor sunshine. That's his name, literally. Samson means sunshine. (laughs) Because he fell with Delilah, as you know. And the Talmud tells us she was a temple prostitute. So he got in trouble. As Romans 1 says, your own backsliding. It says, God will, if you insist, God will give it to you. You don't want God to give it to you. What is that? Your way. Your demands. Your will. No, no, no. Don't give it to me, God. But what I love is this. It says, as you know, Samson's hair grew back. Talk about hair restoration. (laughs) He would be a great spokesman for a hair restoration product. Let me read to you from Isaiah 61, the prophet of God, Isaiah. He's not talking about Samson per se, but boy, does it pertain to the same story, to the same truth, to the same reality that what? Where sin abounds, grace abounds more that God takes our sin where Satan takes it to beat us. And rightfully so God takes it, forgives us and even works all things together for good. Isaiah 61, you, you know the scripture, but I love to read it again. Verse one. The spirit of the Lord has come upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me up to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the opening of the prison, to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord, to grant to those who mourn to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit, that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that why he may be glorified. Why does God take those of us who were poor, 
and preach good news. Those of us who are brokenhearted and bind us up. Why does he take the captive and proclaim liberty? Why does God give oil of gladness to those who are mourning, the garment of praise to those of a faint spirit? Why does he do these things that we might be the oaks of righteousness? Why? That he may be glorified. That is why. That is why God forgives my sin, that he may be glorified. That is why God is patient with you, that he may be glorified. That is why he takes the weak and makes them strong, that he may be glorified. That is why he takes our sin and casts it into the depths of the sea, that he may be glorified. In all of God's gracious work, it's that he may be glorified. So all glory to him because he has been so gracious to me and also to you. Amen. Tune in tomorrow. Call in tomorrow, 899-KAPL for Free For All Friday. The first one. We'll see if anyone does call in. Love to take your questions or your thoughts about the scriptures here live on KAPL. Check out my new website, peterjohncorson.com. Come out tonight for our prayer meeting. The Lord bless you. Seven o'clock here tonight, an hour of prayer. You will be blessed you'll receive even more than you've given. Lord willing, talk to you tomorrow.